millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Censored, a podcast about the literary culture wars of the 20th century. I'm Aoife Vritnach, historian and reader of bold books. You can support the show on patreon.com slash censoredpod if you're able. There's show notes, full-length interviews with guests and bonus smut there for dedicated filth merchants. Or you can rate or review the pod on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find the show, which makes it more fun for me. This episode, I'm reading The Stud by Jackie Collins from 1969. I was very excited when I saw Jackie Collins on the band list. As a teenage fan of Jilly Cooper, I thought Collins would be right up my street. And I remember Jackie and her sister Joan from TV in the 80s and 90s. They were wildly over-the-top glamorous with the biggest hair, the most sparkly eyeshadow and the longest nails. I couldn't wait to read a book that helped launch Jackie's best-selling career. Then I learned that the romance novelist Barbara Cartland said this book was filthy, disgusting and unnecessary. Well, I had to read it. I was expecting a bonkbuster of hundreds of pages, but it's barely 200 pages long. Unfortunately, I'm not using an original edition, but a revised version from 1984. Collins rewrote it a few times. The book became a film in 1978, starring Jackie's sister Joan. The film script written by Jackie changed the characters' names, and she later incorporated those changes into the book. Finding an original 1969 edition was impossible, so we're going to have to work with this revised version. And for the first time ever, I'm going to give a content warning. This book is trash. Pure fucking trash. The cover is illustrated with a whip next to the tagline, There's no such thing as an impossible fantasy. I still don't know what this means. I started reading the book on the bus. Now, thanks to COVID restrictions, it was mostly empty. So nobody saw me collapse into helpless giggles. I'm going to have a hard time reading out the sexy bits because it's all hilarious. The story is about a bloke called Tony Blake, a working class Jewish boy made good and the stud of the title. The opposing female character to Tony is Fontaine Khaled, a former model who's horny as hell. All other characters play supporting roles to these two titans. Fontaine's husband has a daughter by a previous marriage, Alexandra, and she also features prominently. Everyone else is just window dressing. 
Now, the way this book is written is kind of unusual. The main characters tell the story from their first-person point of view. So, chapter one is Tony on Tony. Chapter two is Fontaine on Fontaine. Alexandra gets to tell her side of the story too. The odd thing about these different narrative voices is that the same events are told over and over again, as Tony explains first what happened and then Fontaine does. If you like unreliable narrators, Collins is the blockbuster novelist for you. At first, I thought this narrative trick was zippy and fun, but after a while it becomes a little bit repetitive. You may find a drink helps you cope with these unreliable narrators. I tried, but the snort laughing got in the way. Whatever you choose to drink, know that some of it will end up going up your nose. Luckily, I didn't have to read far before I found some sex. Page six, to be precise. And this is in chapter one, written from Tony's point of view. I got laid at 13, just before I got bar mitzvahed. If the family knew, they'd sure as old Harry be proud of me. It was all good, clean fun. The girl, she was a few years older than me, gave me the crabs, and I spent about six months alternatively trying to get rid of them and passing them on to any girl who got lucky. Eventually, I passed them on to the wrong girl, and everyone found out. So, underage sex and pubic lice, already. But Collins didn't stop there. A paragraph later, Tony tells us this. I got a variety of jobs, delivering papers, sweeping up in a factory, usher in the local cinema. I got fired from that when the manager found me making it with a bird in the back row of the stalls. It was his best usherette, and he was screwing her at the same time, so he was a bit choked. Unfortunately, I knocked her up, and there was a family scandal. But seeing the manager wanted her back as good usherettes were hard to come by, he paid for her to get unknocked up and everything was all right. A reasonably scandalous paragraph, including sex in a cinema and abortion. Just two more paragraphs later, very short paragraphs as well, Tony then tells us about shagging his first cousin. Collins is just piling on the sex in the first few pages. For context, this is Tony's description of himself. So it's pretty flattering. I don't want to sound conceited, but imagine a taller Tony Curtis with a touch of Michael Caine and Chris Christopherson. Tony Curtis with a London accent and a swagger of Michael Caine's Alfie. Very bad boy sexy. Collins had tried to get Curtis to play Tony in the film, but it fell through. Her sister Joan, who played Fontaine, said her role in the film revived her acting career and led directly to her starring in Dynasty. So maybe Tony Curtis missed out. Anyway, to get back to the sex. The first silly sex scene is between Tony and Fontaine in her fancy apartment. And this is from page 11. I followed her to a small elevator and we pressed closely together as it started up. She unzipped my trousers and rubbed me with her long, talented fingers. Man, I was ready to shoot off there and then. <laughs> so bad. Suddenly, the elevator stopped and she shrugged off her robe. I stared at her lean body. She had tiny breasts with pale, extended nipples. Are we there? I asked foolishly. 
No, but we soon can be, she replied, pulling at my trousers. <laughs> the elevator was small, gave you a touch of the claustrophobia, but she managed to get me down to my bare skin. I must say in all my dealing with birds, I've never had one behave like this. Tony, you come up to all my expectations, she muttered. Sit down, I'll show you how to do it in a lift. Oh man, what an experience. <laughs> Sorry, I'll get back onto it. Thinking back, I didn't get a chance to do much because she did everything. Of course, I rose to the occasion magnificently. I was out of my depth and knew it. I just let her have her way. I wasn't going to blow this setup. She dug her nails deep into my back and twisted her long white legs around me. She didn't moan or cry out. She muttered, Screw me, you bastard. Keep it hard. Well, I'd never had any problem doing that. <laughs> okay. I don't know what to say. It's just silly. Shortly after this ridiculous scene in the elevator, she takes him to another fancy place, where he shags her with very little input from her, and once again... It's hilarious. This begins on page 13. I finally got them off and started some action. She just lay there very stiff, smiling slightly. Very different from the last time. It was rather exciting, really. Took me off guard, so to speak. I mean, I was expecting it to be like the last time. It didn't take me long before I was through. Wowee! Exclamation mark. I rolled off her and studied our bodies in the mirrored ceiling. She said very slowly, Tony, how would you like to learn to be a good lover? So the sex was pretty shite then, Fontaine. Fair enough. But then Collins tells us the story from Fontaine's point of view in the next chapter. She tells us about the first time she screwed Tony on page 16. The first time was a disaster. Of course he had an animal charm, a sexy walk, but that was about all. In bed he had a marvellous body, but he had no skill. For someone so well endowed, it was a shame. I thought to myself, he's very attractive, in a basic way. If he appeals to me, he will probably appeal to lots of women. That's why I decided to use him in the discotheque. I do love the catty, bored, rich person tone of Fontaine. It's very funny. The two main characters have very distinct narrative styles, so that helps make it entertaining. She's so cynical that it is amusing. She knows that he's having an affair with her best friend, Vanessa, for example. And she says this on page 17. One day I'm going to tell Tony I know about him and Vanessa. He'll have a fit. He thinks he's being so clever. He's like a little boy, hates being found out. I don't care. As long as he's got enough left for me, he can do what he likes. He's really an idiot. A sexy idiot stud. It's that lower class mentality of his. He'll never change. He's useful though. Definitely worth keeping on a leash. I'm sure you've worked out by now that nobody is very nice in this book. Poor Tony feels he's being used, which is true, and resents Fontaine's control over him. She employs him to run her nightclub and the bargain includes regular shagging. Fontaine, on the other hand, 
finds him so tremendously boring that she can't spend time with him that doesn't involve sex. And that's the engine of the plot, the power tussle between Tony and Fontaine. He wants to be free of her, but she expects to make all the decisions about their relationship. She's a man-eating vamp, and he's a man who'd get up on a cracked plate. They're perfectly matched, really. Although they have lots of sex, it's mostly not very good. It's quick, unskilled, pointless, or emotionally sterile. I didn't feel anyone had much fun, even if the sex was often very funny to read. But now for the plot twist. And I wish I had dramatic soap opera music for this big reveal. Fontaine's stepdaughter, Alexandra, is home from finishing school in Switzerland. The first line of her chapter is, It's simply terrific to be home. I can't do a silly posh English accent, but that's how I imagine her talking. Anyway, her girlish innocence captivates Tony. He falls for her really hard. He turns to mush at the sight of her and does his best to chat her up. This confirmed playboy thinks he can marry her and set up house and all those boring grown-up things he has turned his back on up to now. I found this quite silly. Why would someone change that dramatically? Alexandra doesn't encourage him, so it's not like he has a reason to change. It's just such trash. Anyway, that's the fucking unbelievable love story part of the book. It's a typically conventional idea surrounded by lots of sex, drugs and booze. Some of the sex is illegal. One of Tony's friends, Sammy, picks up young girls. And this is from page 47. Sammy's date was 15 if she was a day. He had picked her up at a bus stop. One of Sammy's habits was to cruise the streets in his second-hand E-type looking for likely birds. He never copped out, always came up with something. I guess they liked second-hand E-types. One of his favourite stories was of how he followed a bus from Baker Street to the Elephant and Castle because he fancied some little darling on it. And according to him, he made it at the end of the ride. One of these days, he was going to get himself into a lot of trouble. Some tough father was going to ram a fist down his stupid throat. Anyway, until that day came, he was happy. Isn't that chipper tone just disgusting? And the most Sammy has to fear is a father, not a court sentence. In the multiple rewrites of this book, Collins never changed this part. It's so dodgy. Obviously, Collins wasn't the only author at this time who viewed young girls as sexual. On the same band list as The Stud was a book called The Hot Blood of Youth by Stacey Club, And this is the tagline from the cover. Must mature women shun the arms of young men? Must older men avoid the embraces of young girls? Ugh! It says young girls, not young women. Mature women versus young men is not the same as older men versus young girls. It's just revolting. As I read this book, I did wonder if Collins had a censorship bingo card because she threw as much sex as possible into it. At one point, Fontaine brings Tony to New York so she can shag him and show him off. There's a dope-fueled orgy scene on page 100 and I figure if I had to read it, you all have to listen to it. And the four participants are Tony, Fontaine and her friends Sarah and Alan. But before they get down to the real business of the evening, they all put on kimonos. 
Not sure why. Maybe it's the must-have accessory of 1969. And this is Tony's reaction. I put on the kimono. The silk felt great. I wished it wasn't so short. It just about covered my balls. And that is the standout sentence of the whole book for me. Burnt into my brain forevermore. I'll never get over it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Anyway, on with the rest of it. It continues. There was some weird Japanese music playing and Sarah offered me her cigarette. I took a drag. We were sitting on a sofa and opposite on another sofa were Fontaine and Alan. I handed the cigarette back to Sarah. She puffed and leaned back, blowing little smoke rings to the ceiling. My turn. This wasn't too bad. I felt a certain numbness creep over me and the music sounded fantastic. I put the cigarette back in her mouth and she leaned over and put her hands under the kimono. Her fingers felt like burning tongs as they fled around my flesh. I glanced over at Fontaine. She was lying against the cushions and Alan was peeling the white thing off her. I watched fascinated as her body came into view and he started to kiss her. Her legs were spread and she moaned softly. Meanwhile, Sarah's hands manipulated me. She took off my kimono and man, I felt great. Then I started to fly and I was pounding into someone and when I looked it was Fontaine and then Sarah and then both of them were all over me. It was a kaleidoscope of faces, and man, for the first time, I was really stoned. Honestly, that's a bit crap. The writing isn't great, is it? Although the immortal line, her fingers felt like burning tongs as they fled around my flesh, could certainly win an award in the bad sex competition. So when Tony wakes up the next morning, he's having a crisis of conscience, wondering how he's going to marry a nice girl like Alexandra if he's so perverted. By now, I'm kind of thinking that Tony probably finds oral sex deeply kinky. Fontaine gets bored of him after this particular orgy scene, and I'm kind of not surprised. Even though she's deeply unsympathetic, he just comes off as ridiculous after all of this. And now I'm going to share with you some other notable sex scenes that made me laugh. 
Naturally, no international flight for Tony is complete without a shag. And this is from page 85. What a scene. Under the rug, I fought my hand up the tight skirt. She wriggled down in the seat, helping me. She had nothing on underneath, making things very easy, she was. I unhooked her bra under her prim blouse. Her breasts were small but nice. I wished I could see them, but there we were, all huddled up under the rug. She unzipped my trousers and with a deft movement twisted herself towards me and then I was up, up and away. (laughs) Seriously, up, up and away. In that particular paragraph, there are just five sentences and three of them conclude with an exclamation mark. Collins's breathless excitement writing style isn't so much to do with the sexy stories, but all those feckin' exclamation marks. But for all the sex, it's not very explicit. At no point does the word cock appear. Obviously, there are boobs aplenty, but all we get otherwise are unzipped trousers or hands-up skirts. And it's all written in a very light-hearted, silly way. Even the sexual assault scene doesn't really affect anyone. And this occurs on page 45 when Alexandra is taken home in a car by some bloke called Peter who never appears ever again. I must have slept for ages because when I awoke we were parked in a country lane and Peter was kissing me. I didn't know what to do. He had taken me by surprise and I didn't want to offend him. After all, he had driven me all this way. So I sat quietly while he kissed me, waiting for the right moment to push him away. Oh no! Suddenly I felt his hand on my breast. Well, I certainly wasn't going to just sit there now. I moved his hand away. Please stop that, Peter, I said firmly. But he didn't, and soon I found myself really struggling. His hands were everywhere. Don't fight me, he said, as I managed to push his hands away once again. Just lie back and enjoy it. I hated him. He had one hand up my skirt now and I swung my arm at his head with all the force I could muster. He stopped at once, clutching his mouth where my blow had landed. You little bitch, he exclaimed in surprise. Well, honestly, I couldn't wait to tell Madeline. That seems an odd response. You can't wait to tell your best mate. Weird. And Alex here seems more stroppy than traumatised. This particular incident is never mentioned ever again. It plays no role in plot or character development. Collins isn't averse to chucking in a bit of sexual violence for fun or shock value. Though there are a few other occasions of no meaning yes, in men's opinion at least, so it is an accurate reflection of ideas about consent in the 60s and 70s. One of the funniest things about switching the point of view between Tony and Fontaine and Alexandra is the differing perceptions of sex it reveals. Remember when I said Tony was mad about Alexandra? They do shag, eventually, and this is how it's told from Tony's point of view. I had this funny sort of choking feeling. Christ, I love this girl so much. It wasn't even sex. I was so sure that I wanted to make love to her. She was so pure and innocent, and maybe she should stay that way. But she wanted me. She wanted to belong to me. She smelled so sweet, like summer flowers. 
I was on top of her and showing her what to do, and she was gasping and biting her lower lip and staring at me with those wide, brown, innocent eyes. Oh, God! I pulled out just in time. It was fantastic. Then she rolled away from me and lay on her stomach. She was mine. Isn't all that ownership stuff a bit weird? Horribly traditional in the worst possible way. But then a few pages later, Colin switches to Alexandra's perspective and we get to hear her version of this momentous sexual occasion. Am I a woman of the world now? It wasn't much fun. I mean, I just sort of lay there while Tony climbed on top of me. He was awfully heavy and it hurt. I don't know what all the fuss is about, if that's all you do. And it's so messy. Ugh. I didn't enjoy it at all. And once again, Tony the Stud disappoints. I don't really know why he's called the Stud if he's no good at it. An important plot point you might need to know is that she was a virgin before she had sex with Tony. I think this switching between first-person point of view does make it entertaining. But learning what each character thinks entirely abolishes narrative suspense. And that's the best part of romance plot lines. If you know what everyone is thinking, it's much more a comedy of errors than a matter of great emotional importance. This suits Collins's paper-thin characters quite well. Their verbal tics are the most memorable things about them, after all. Long-time listeners will not be surprised that this was banned, given how many otherwise innocuous books were blacklisted. But I wanted to read a book from after 1967, because there is a belief that censorship in Ireland was over after the Censorship Act of 1967. Under this act, the prohibition orders were reduced from forever to 12 years. In other episodes, I've mentioned that the book I was reading got out of censorship jail after 1968. So this act was a huge reform of censorship law. But it would be a mistake to think that the censorship board went quietly into the night. As Dr Deirdre Foley explained in the Mary Stopes episode, information about contraception was censored until 1979. Literary censorship didn't stop either. In 1970, the board blacklisted 83 books. Looking at the banned books from 1970, it's clear that serious literature is no longer in the censor's sights. The French Lieutenant's Woman, by John Fowles, wasn't banned, even though it does have sex in it. The rudest book of 1969, Portnoy's Complaint, wasn't banned either. So what's going on here? I'll cover it fully whenever I get round to the dark, the book that was the catalyst for the legal change in 67, but I think it's all about shame. The government was embarrassed into reforming the censorship law and the censors after 1967 knew that not embarrassing the government was their real job. Banning literary works could lead to awkward questions in the doyle. And nobody is going to write a newspaper editorial on censorship using Jackie Collins as an example of an unjustly banned book. Serious journalists want to argue for serious causes and Jackie Collins refused to be serious. Even I would struggle to argue that the population deserved to read about Tony the Stud. But why should all reading be serious or meaningful? 
Lots of people don't want to read multi-layered novels of great critical importance. I read lots of them and there's plenty of times I can't fucking face them either. Under the newly reformed censorship, lowbrow books were still banned, as they had been since the 1950s. In the 70s, the censors were ignoring sex in literature, but not in trashy, silly fiction. Sex itself was no longer the problem, but easy-to-read books with sensational sex were unacceptable. The censors were no longer prudes, but they were now literary fucking snobs of the highest order. Yes, the stud is trash, but I laughed while reading it. We need silly books too, and I hope the readers of 1970s Ireland found plenty of fluffy smut elsewhere. Now it's time to see how the stud fares in censorship bingo. And we begin with breasts, as usual. Yes, there's plenty of boobs in this book. Bestiality? No, nothing. Sex work? I would say no, unless you want to argue that Tony's relationship with Fontaine is itself a form of sex work. It's certainly a business relationship, including sex. Racism? Yes, there is a vomit-inducing sex scene on page 17, where Fontaine describes the best lay of her life from a, quote, great big black Zulu, unquote. It's dreadful. Drugs. Yes, the orgy is fueled by drugs. Politics. Definitely not. Not even implicit. No subtext whatsoever. Swearing. I honestly don't think one or two bitches counts as swearing, so I won't tick this. Infidelity. Well, yes, it's the foundation of the story that Fontaine is cheating on her husband. Crime. I don't think so, really. The underage sex is framed as inappropriate rather than criminal. Genitalia. No, not a thing. Abortion. Yes, appears in the first few pages. Orgies. Yes, the orgy scene in New York reveals that Tony is in fact a suburbanite in sexual tastes. Sexual assault. Poor Alexandra is subjected to a sexual assault in this text for no good plot or character development reasons. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, also appears in the first page or two. Masturbation. Yes, Tony is left alone with a boner and wishes he had Playboy to help him relieve the situation. So I think we can tick that box. Sex toys. No, not a thing. Feminism. In spite of when it was written in the late 60s, there isn't a hint of feminism in this. Divorce. Yes, Fontaine is her husband's second wife. Contraception. Hmm, this is a difficult one, as Tony practices the withdrawal method, but that's about the only reference we get to contraception. No condoms or no pills, which is kind of odd given the time period. Menstruation. No, not a thing. Blasphemy. No, not at all relevant. Oral sex? No. Graphic violence? No, there's no violence worth talking about in this. Queer content? I think everyone is presented as heterosexual. 
So the stud earns a score of 10 out of 25, which is reasonably respectable. I do think this book is quite coy around sex. It's not explicit, coarse or blunt about sexual matters. For all that Tony has a giant cock, none of the women shagging him actually say the word cock. I suppose I should be grateful it's not a magic cock, at least. But this wink-wink, nudge-nudge style served Jackie Collins very well. She wrote 31 books, which sold 500 million copies in over 40 countries. With sales like that, she'd never have noticed her first two novels were banned in Ireland. And now that I've read a trashy book, I can face into a serious book about war and guilt. Next episode will feature And Where Were You, Adam? by Heinrich Boll. This is the first text I'm reading that was originally written in another language. The Censorship Act applied only to English language works, so it was the translation that was banned. Boll was an important post-World War II German author, but he also had a long and interesting relationship with Ireland. I wonder if his war novel will be as rude as Catch-22 from season one. Till then, read whatever you like, and never claim your trashy reading is a guilty pleasure. Pleasure should never bring guilt. If you love trashy books, embrace the fun and frivolity. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.